this is not a go-to topic for most Calvary Chapel pastors, but it is a very important topic, and it can't be overlooked. And as it comes up in God's Word, it needs to be taught. And that's the beauty of chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse teaching, because when it comes up, it gets taught. And uh, it doesn't get avoided, it just gets taught. Um, One thing I wanted to mention is that here at Riverside, we don't pass an offering plate. I'm sure most of you have noticed that. We never have. Not because we think it's wrong. Many churches pass an offering plate. uh, And a lot of people are accustomed to seeing that plate get passed around. But we've just always believed in the principle of where God guides, he provides. And that has been and will continue to be how the elders of this church choose to navigate the financial part of the journey that we're on with our Lord here at Riverside. So if this is your first time here at Riverside and you're thinking, great, I was excited about going to a church that teaches God's word and doesn't ask for money, and here we are. Well, be patient and know that today's message isn't asking for money. It's about how to be a cheerful giver, someone who doesn't have to give but gets to and desires to. And that's really the whole point of today's message. You don't have to, but you get to. So let's pray. Father, as we go through your word today, I just pray, Lord, it really, uh, we don't just hear the words. Lord, we allow it just to get into us and change who we are. For those that need change when it comes to giving. And Lord, even in my own life, um, this has been a great um, message to have to go through and prepare. Just to really show me again what it really means to give. So, Father, bless our time together. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Now, I want to give you some background before we get into our message this morning. On his third missionary journey, the Apostle Paul has traveled between the churches of Macedonia and Achaia, took up an offering as he traveled, not for himself, but for the church at Jerusalem, which was going through hard times financially due to a severe famine in the region. Paul saw this as an opportunity for a time of bonding between the Gentile Christians in Greece and the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, and he was eager to complete the gift. But the Corinthian congregation, although they had initially seemed eager to help, after a year they still hadn't raised money. So this morning we're going to look at how the Apostle Paul addresses this concern with the Corinthian church. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 8, and please stand as I read the first five verses. It says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints, and not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord, and then to us by the will of God. You may be seated. Paul's not wasting any time here as he brings up the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia. Let me read the verse again. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Macedonia was located in present-day northern Greece. Corinth was located in the south, and Paul wanted to share with the Corinthian church just what was happening with the believers north of them. So he continues, speaking of the Macedonian churches and how they had received the grace of God and how it was observed through their incredible generosity. 
In verse 2 it says that in the great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing. Paul says he bears witness. He had firsthand knowledge that they were freely, willingly, and in an abundance of joy, and doing this incredibly when they were under their own great uh, trial that they were enduring. Abundance of joy to do what? What was Paul talking about? To be freely willing to give financially, even beyond their ability. He's telling the Corinthian believers that even though these northern churches, Thessalonica, Berea, and particularly Philippi, were going through tough times too, they shared generously and joyfully. Do you remember the story of the widow's two mites in Mark 12? We see Jesus sitting in the courtyard of the temple, and he's watching as the people put money in the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow drops in two mites. Hard to even know what that would be in our, our day's money. Maybe an eighth of a cent or something. So Jesus calls his disciples over and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For all, they all put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had, her whole livelihood. And it's interesting that the widow, from a monetary standpoint, gave almost nothing. Have you ever thought, what's the point in only giving a few dollars or even a few cents to the Lord? What good's it going to do? How's it going to help anybody? Well, understand this. Our Lord doesn't look at the amount. He looks at the heart. If all you have is a few dollars or even a few cents, but you give it freely and willingly and with an abundance of joy, then like the widow and the Macedonian believers, you're expressing your conviction that all belongs to the Lord. And he is worthy of it all. And never underestimate what God will do with it. What seems like nothing to us. Remember the fish and the loaves story? God can multiply in ways we never and cannot understand. When this fellowship first started, Pastor Brent came to me and he rightly said, I never want to have knowledge of how much each person ties. So I want you to take care of that. And I was hesitant and I didn't want to. Um, I didn't want to because I didn't want to know either. I didn't want it to influence how I related to people. So I prayed and I asked the Lord, if you want me to have this responsibility, then please allow this knowledge to never affect how I see someone. To this day, you will see my signature on your tax receipt for charitable donations. And I will say this. My prayer was answered and God has explained it to me this way. Although I might know the amount that people give, I don't know the heart or the circumstances of the person when it was given. Therefore, I'm never impressed or disappointed. I'm just glad. And praise God, at this age, I don't even remember. <laughs> I don't. The Macedonian believers, even when in a great trial of affliction and their deep poverty, abounded in an abundance of joy the riches of their liberality. Think about that which extended not only according to their ability to give, but beyond their ability to give. Let's look at the next two verses. In verse 4 it says, Imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. 
And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Paul didn't have to beg for money from the Macedonian Christians. He wouldn't have done that anyway. Instead, they were begging him. He says they were imploring them to receive the gift. Why were they so insistent to give of their finances? Perhaps because of the fellowship that takes place when there is sharing of finances. Matthew 6.21 says, Where your treasure is, there will your heart also. So perhaps the northern churches knew that if their treasure went to their brothers in Jerusalem, their hearts would be united with them as well. Pastor John Corson once said, The pathway to fellowship is often through the pocketbook because our money is representative of our time and energy. Therefore, when you give of your finances to a brother, a sister, or a ministry, you're actually giving part of your life. Thus, the most practical way of laying down your life is to give financially. So how did these believers get to the place where they completely understood the principle of giving and were so willing to put into practice what they believed and give beyond even what Paul had hoped? That's incredible giving. In verse 5 it says, Not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. And I think that's key. I came across this story, and I think it might help us to understand what Paul is saying here. It goes like this. As the offering was being taken during a revival in Africa, a brand new Christian told the deacon holding the collection plate to put it lower. And he kept telling him lower and lower and lower until it was on the ground. Then he stood up and he stepped in. This man understood. This man, this brand new believer got the picture. He gave himself. Church, in giving, the real issue isn't giving money, it's giving ourselves to the Lord. If we really give ourselves to the Lord, then the right kind of material giving is going to naturally follow. Ephesians 6, 6 says, Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And Colossians 3, 2 says, Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. I remember early on in my Christian walk, struggling with the giving of my finances. I didn't know what to do. I would give a portion of whatever I had in my pocket each Sunday, but it never seemed right to me. I began to look up verses on tithing, trying to determine what was the proper way. How was I going to do this? What was going to make sense? I talked with my pastor at the time and listened to his good counsel and decided to pray specifically about that. And after much prayer... I decided um, that Debbie and I, my wife, should be giving at least a tenth of our gross income. Problem was that when we did the math, we would be broke in less than a year, no matter how we worked the numbers. It just did not make sense. But as we pondered and prayed and read the word, we began to understand that we were fooling ourselves. We truly believed that we trusted God to take care of us and to provide for us and to protect us. But we felt we couldn't trust him with our finances. And if that was true, then really, we didn't trust him at all. It was then that we realized that we hadn't first given ourselves to the Lord. We needed to set our minds on things above, not on things on the earth. So we decided to do just that and decided to trust him with everything and began to tithe 10%. And if we were broke in a year, so be it. Apparently, God doesn't do math like we do. Because we have never been in want since. We're not rich, but he just 
provides. Church, now listen carefully. The question should never be, how much of my money should I give away? But how would God have me use his money? So giving back to God what is already his is to be done with thoughtfulness, sacrifice, generosity, and abundant joy. That said, we should all thoughtfully consider how much to give based upon our income. We were recently taught in 1 Corinthians 16.2 the following. Now regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia. On the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money you have earned. Don't wait until I get there and then try to collect it all at once. And along these same lines, and as Pastor Brent will be teaching in a few weeks, in 2 Corinthians, it says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, and not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Amen? So thoughtfulness, generosity, freedom, and an abundance of joy are all part of giving. Church, we are to be cheerful in our giving. If you're being pressured or compelled to give and you're not able to give in a cheerful manner, then really don't give. God doesn't want you to give if you can't do it willingly and cheerfully. Church, it isn't easy to be, or sorry, church, isn't it easy to be joyful when singing praise songs to the Lord? We just did that, right? And how much joy that brings to you? Shouldn't we have the same joy when we're giving, when that desire to give? And yet so many of us struggle with that. Here's a little illustration of how not to view the privilege of giving. During his message on giving, a pastor was doing his best to teach his congregation what a tithe was. He said, now, if you had $5 million, he asked the crowd, how many of you will give out just one-tenth to the church? And they all raised their hands, and they were excited. All but one raised their hands. Bemused, the pastor walked down towards the one who didn't. And he said, why not, my child? Isn't there nothing more joyous than giving back to the church and serving God? And the man answered, well, no, I guess not. But I do have a million, five million dollars. And so it's just that heart of, he couldn't bear the thought of only having 4.5 million dollars and giving away 500 was too much. A man named Hughes had something interesting to say and it needs to be heard in our day. The example of the Macedonians is practical proof that true generosity is not the prerogative of those who enjoy an adequacy of means. The most genuine liberality is frequently displayed by those who have the least to give. Christian giving is estimated in terms not of quantity, but of sacrifice. In verse 6 it says, So we urge Titus that, he had, that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace. Also, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. The Apostle Paul is so excited over the example of the Macedonians, he now wants the Corinthians to imitate them, and he's encouraging Titus to follow up with the believers in Corinth and get them to complete what was started. 
When Titus first visited the Corinthians, he had brought up this idea of taking up a collection for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And now, when he goes back, Paul is telling Titus to see that the Corinthians complete this grace. Or in other words, take your good intentions and translate them into action. Church, our good intentions, our vows, and our resolutions are useless without action. It's like seeing a brother or sister who has no food and no clothing. And you say, well, it's so nice to see you. Goodbye. Have a good day. Make sure you stay warm and well and eat. But you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? How did you help that person? In verse 7, Paul continues and begins to commend the Corinthian believers for abounding in faith and speech and knowledge and in their love for him and Titus. But Paul wants to be able to commend them for one more virtue. Commend them in all generosity. Scottish theologian James Denny warns of the man who abounds in spiritual interests, who is fervent, prayerful, affectionate, able to speak in the church, but unable to part with his money, that is a man that has not yet given himself to the Lord. And I think that's so true. Paul ends verse 7 with, See that you abound in this grace also. This is the fourth time since the beginning of the chapter that Paul refers to giving money as a grace in which Paul uses the ancient Greek word haras to describe financial giving, which translates this way, affording joy, pleasure, and delight. Church, do you feel abundant joy, pleasure, and delight when you drop your tithe into the offering box? Hopefully you do. Because your giving should be like God's giving of grace to us, giving freely and generously because we want to give. And because the motive of the love and generosity of God is so big in our heart that we simply must give. Paul now makes it clear in verse 8 when he says, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. He's not commanding them to give. He's not laying down the law on them. He's saying to the Corinthians, and in reality to us, here is an opportunity to prove the sincerity of your love for Jesus. In verse 9, it says, for, though you, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. The Apostle Paul now directs our attention to the greatest example there is of what it means to give sacrificially. Here Paul cleverly teaches the pre-existence of Jesus when he says that though our Lord Jesus Christ was rich, he became poor. Church, when was Jesus rich? Well, as the second person of the Trinity, Jesus is as rich as God is rich. Without doubt, our Lord owns everything, possesses all power, all authority, all sovereignty, all glory, all honor, and all majesty. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet... We don't see that during his time here on this earth. No one can rightly read the scriptures and considered him to have been rich. During his time here on earth, he willingly relinquished his eternal riches and most of the privileges of his deity. Becoming poor, our Lord took on the nature of a lowly and humble servant. And by the time our Savior endured the tortures of the cross for us, his earthly possessions amounted to no more than the clothes on his back. And even they were divided up by the soldiers who crucified him. In Luke chapter 9, it says, As they were walking along, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus replied, Foxes have dens to live in and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to even lay his head. In fact, when we consider our Lord's time here on earth, 
we realize that he didn't own much of anything. Consider the following. Jesus slept in a borrowed cradle. Jesus preached from a borrowed boat. He rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He ate his last meal in a borrowed room, and he was buried in a borrowed grave. He was a homeless stranger in the world his hands had made. And yet he, who made everything, laid it all down and entered into poverty so that whosoever believes in him might be rich. Not rich of money, but salvation. We're urged to give a little money, clothing, and food. He gave himself. So really, this is what it comes down to. Not only did the Macedonians give abundantly in their own poverty, but to an infinitely greater degree, Jesus gave everything to set us free. And salvation is available in Jesus Christ alone. In verse 10, it says, And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it. That as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. Paul now turns his attention back to the Corinthians and offers them some advice. He reminds them that they were the ones who had thought of making a collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem, even before the Macedonians had determined to do it. In fact, the Corinthians had actually begun collecting before the Macedonian churches had even started their fund, and yet a year has now passed and giving was never completed. There was good intentions without much action. Paul reminds them that there was a readiness to desire it, so there must also be a completion out of what you have. In other words, Paul's saying, you express the desire to give, now do it. Barclay said, the devil will let you resolve or determine to do something as much as you like, the more the better, just as long as you never carry it out. The tragedy of life is so often this, not that we have no high impulses, but that we fail to turn them into actions. Did you catch what Paul said in the last part of verse 11? He's telling them that as there was a readiness to desire it, so there must also be a completion. In other words, he's saying, get it done out of what you have. But church, we can't give what we don't have, and that's okay, because God's, God judges our giving based on what resources we have at the time. That said, also remember that the issue of what and how we spend is relevant to what you have. As an example, if you want to have the latest of everything and spend accordingly, and that's why you never have any money to give, you can't use that as an excuse before God by saying, well, I don't have anything to give you, Lord, because you're not meeting my wants. If that happens to be the case for you, then you probably won't have a willing mind, as Paul continues to explain in verse 12, when he says, For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, and not according to what he does not have. Again, God doesn't expect us to give what we don't have, but he does want us to have a willingness to give. True Christian giving can't be measured by amount. True Christian giving is measured by obedience, proportion and need, but not by amount. So how does each of us know what we should give? Well, based on the principles taught throughout Scripture, there is no one answer to that question for every believer. But the New Testament gives us great clarity in teaching that giving should be regular, planned, proportional to what we have, and private. 
and that it should be generous, freely given, and cheerful. A few, a few weeks ago, we had a Life of the Fellowship, which I thought was just, a, it's just so great for all of us to get together. Who was able to get there? Any of you? Yeah, quite a few of you. Wasn't a fun time. It was a fun time, and we also learned a lot. Uh, one of the topics that was shared was the finances of the church and also the desire to find another place to meet. We're, we're trying to figure out a way to make this more manageable. Looking at where the church is financially and then looking at the cost to buy land in a building and build a facility makes you realize how daunting and expensive that endeavor can be. It's staggering. But God, God can make it happen just like that. As an update, at the time of the life of the fellowship, there was $1,690 in the new church building fund. As of this week, it has grown to around $14,000. Praise the Lord. Okay. So now we're only 4,986,000 away from our $5 million goal. But that's, that's fine. That's good. People are giving. And thank you for those that are giving. And praise God. He could take care of that just like that. But he wants to teach us how to give. And that's a big plan with high hopes. And, it's God, and if it's God's will, he's going to make a way. But giving, there's more to giving than just always financial. There's so many needs that we can give to right now. Little things. Open your heart. Share with a person who is struggling financially. Maybe you can't help them a lot, but maybe you can help them with a little something. For those who don't know, the church has a benevolence fund. If you're ever really stuck, you can reach out to us, and there's a process to go through, and um, we'll try and help you. Write an email or send a text of encouragement to someone you know who needs it. I can't tell you how important that is for people, just to see encouragement. Pray for the person who's hurting. Do something. Do anything. Just do it. If you're sure that God has placed something on your heart for you to do and you've been holding off for whatever reason, just do it. Get it done. Okay, it's time to wrap up. 20 more minutes. I should go into Pastor Brent mode. Anyway, I won't do that. 13 and 14, verses 13 and 14. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack. This is very important to listen to. That their abundance also may supply your lack. That there may be equality. This is something that we can easily miss as we go through this life, especially here in North America. And Paul explains it so well to the Corinthian believers. He's saying, I'm not trying to convince you to overextend yourself and give more than you have. But as a northern believer shared so generously, so should you. Why, we might ask? Because you don't know when the situation might unexpectedly change. Saints in Corinth, you don't know when you will be unexpectedly needing their help. And this is not a principle of our, just a principle of our finances, but of life. Scripture teaches the following. Do, as, do unto others as you would have them do to you. It also says, give and it shall be given unto you. And this applies whether it's money or mercy, goods or grace. The basic principle being, whatever you extend will come back your way. Proverbs 19 verse 17 says, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given you get it? This is God's program for dealing with the want and need in his church all over the world. 
It works like this. Whenever a need exists in one area among Christians, then there should be a flow of funds from other areas to that spot in need. This constant flow and interflow of funds would result in equality among churches worldwide. We have this idea of this is us, and then there's the rest of the world, whatever. We need to be aware of what's going on in the world and helping whenever, wherever we can. A time could be coming when we'll be in need. That's what Paul's explaining as he writes this letter, that there should be a flow of funds from Corinth, Macedonia, and other places to the saints in Jerusalem. And in the future, things might change unexpectedly. And it may be the saints in Jerusalem that will now have opportunity to help the saints in Corinth. Why? So that there may be equality amongst the believers. As it's written, he says in verse 15, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Paul is, of course, referring to Exodus 16, verse 18, where we read about the manna from heaven and this principle of equality. When the children of Israel went out to gather manna, some were able to gather more than others, but it didn't matter. When, they, when the manna was distributed, each man received the same amount, one omer or about five pints. So he gathered much, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Now, if anyone tried to hoard manna, what would happen to it? Yeah, bread worms got gross. You're not eating it. So everyone was equal when it came to manna. But this equalization didn't happen by miracle or magic. It happened because those who had too much shared with those who didn't have enough. Listen to this quote by an unknown source. It says, God intends each man to have a share of the good things of life. Some gather more, however, and some gather less. Those who have more should share with those who have less. God permits unequal distribution of property, not so the rich shall selfishly enjoy it, but share it with the poor. So church, what do we learn today? Well, hopefully we learn some things. I got a list of seven things here that I have learned. And there's going to be a ton more, but first one, God owns everything and gives his things, including money, to whom he chooses. Two, how we spend and give away God's money is a fundamental aspect of worship. Three, giving to the church and the ministry of the gospel is commanded by God. Four, giving is to be done with thoughtfulness, sacrifice, generosity, and joy. We are to thoughtfully consider how much to give based upon our income. Five, our giving should, it should be done quietly. Six, as we give for God's glory, sacrificially, generously, and joyfully, God promises a blessing. Seven, as believers... We as believers are family, and we are to take care of one another so that there is equal equality among us. And I'm sure there's more, but I am out of time. I have one last point I want to make. The only way I think there is to be able to put this message of giving into practice, to be able to give financially as the Macedonian believers did, freely willing in an abundance of joy and incredibly doing so even while they were enduring a great travel affliction of their own is to live the command by Jesus in Luke 22. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, I got to tell you, that's a challenge um, 
that's a challenge for me. And if I truly try to live that out, I got a lot of work to do to get even close to that. Because it's hard. I mean, it's easy to say you love the Lord, and we do, but the neighbor thing's rough, or it can be. I mean, sometimes we see people that we just don't like or don't agree with that we're doing things that are horrible, and we have thoughts we shouldn't have. And it's hard. And we should also consider others and what they need and if we can help them, um, even if we don't know them that well. It's, it's a crazy thing, but I think we got to work that out. So the outcome of this message, more importantly, these verses we've read today, at least measured financially, will be interesting to see in the coming weeks and months of the heart condition of this congregation. And I think it's a good heart, but I think we could all do better. Not better. I think we could all... There's a word. Will I, will we, have hearts like the Macedonian believers when it comes to giving, or more like the Corinthian believers? I'll leave you with that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you make it really so clear for us to understand. And yet so many times we hear your word, and then we just dismiss it. And I pray, Lord, that today... Those verses that talk about giving, Lord, that we would really let that sink in. That we would realize that we need to first give ourselves to you. And then, Lord, that generosity will just be an outpouring from us. Lord, when we think of the staggering amount of money it would be to, to have a, our own facility, Lord, you could just hand that to us if you wanted to. But Lord, maybe you're trying to show us how to be involved, how to just be willing to listen to what you tell us, pray about where we can give, and then Lord, as you show us and lead us, that we would just do it. Lord, we don't need to be concerned about the outcome. If, Lord, if you're telling us a certain thing that you want us to do or to support or to give to, then, Lord, let us have the, the understanding and the joy to know that you, if you're calling us to do it, you're going to make the way. Lord, giving is an act of worship. And uh, it gets a bad, it kind of gets a bad rap, Lord, because people have abused it. Lord, I pray that we understand today the joy of giving. And that, Lord, moving forward, we will use these verses as a way of understanding better how we can be a support to the entire Christian community, to our neighbors, and all around us, Lord. Thank you for this message, Lord. Thank you for everything that we have, because it's all yours. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen.